So, um, good morning. I'm Mike Laurie. I'm the lead pastor at Warehouse. It's really good to be with you. I'm glad that you're all here. I'm glad that your children are here. It is good to have our kids with us this month. It's good uh, to be together. And um, uh, we recognize that, um, we, you know, when, when, you, when you stand before an audience and you recognize there are going to be like 40 or four-year-olds up through like 144-year-olds in a room, you, you have to pick a target uh, to arc at. And so um, it may be a little bit over your kid's head. And so what we've done is we've provided all kinds of like things of uh, creativity on these tables. So if your kids are longing for um, if, uh, you know, something to, 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 to work with while we're here, please have access to them. If you as an adult are like, oh my gosh, this is so boring. I need something to do. I won't be offended. Just per, who said exactly? Is that beef? Beef, you know, I just, I shouldn't, I just knew, I just knew. Um, but you can claim it's for your kid. If you don't, claim it's for the kid down the row from you or just in the general vicinity, and I won't be offended. But uh, I'm excited to continue in our series on the generous life this morning. So I'm going to pray, uh, and, uh, and let's just continue in worship this morning. So, Lord, as we open up your word, we trust um, that it is living and has something to say to us this morning. I trust that. Not my words, God, but your words. Um, you um, you, you uh, have challenged us as your people to trust uh, your word, to recognize um, its beauty and its, um, its faithfulness and its trustworthiness. You ask us to live on this beyond the bread that we eat, that it would nourish us. We trust that your Holy Spirit occupies um, occupies this and um, occupies these words and has something to say to us. So um, we're going to trust that this morning. So may the words of this portion of the Sermon on the Mount um, fall afresh on us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now a couple things of housekeeping before we begin. <clears throat> Number one, I'm wearing a really, really fancy shirt and there is access to the shirt. Now I'm going to call out, is Laurie Landry here? Where are you at? Laurie, where are you at? Could you stand up real quick? This is Laurie Landry, pastor of uh, Spiritual Formation. Um, could you give us a little bit of instruction? If people were interested in this, how do they get this? And our new website under resources, you can find a link that's called the company store. It has a picture of a t-shirt. And you can click on it. And there's more than t-shirts, right? You're not done yet. Um, there's like... Uh, <laughs> This is, this is part of my sermon. This is just stretches it out. But there's like coffee mugs. And what else besides coffee mugs? T-shirts? And what? Okay, and coffee mugs. Okay, and there's more to come. But if you are interested in one, you can order one, and it'll directly go to you, and it'll directly go to your credit card, not ours. So thank you for that. What's that, Bob? Bob, did you have something to say? Or you can go straight to the, our Etsy shop. Yeah, th that seems... Fair, too, and minorly complicated. So, um, or you can just find Bob afterwards, and he'll order one for you. Uh, the second one is um, there's a book that I'm holding up, and it's called The Divine Conspiracy. Anybody read The Divine Conspiracy? I know my friend Bill in the back has. Um, this book kind of was written, I don't, I'm not going to look at the date, it was written maybe within the last 15 years. I, I would argue that it, it might be one of the most significant books written for the church um, in our lifetime. Um, Dallas Wilder is a philosopher and a professor, and he wrote this profound book on understanding and rediscovering the hiddenness of God, or our hidden life in God. But it's about the Sermon on the Mount. 
Now, it's not necessarily the general resource that we're using for the, using for the sermon series, but it is a profound book. It is dense, it's timely of your time, and it's costly because um, there's a lot there. But I would challenge you, if you are um, feeling stirred to continue your study, that you would consider reading Divine Conspiracy. It is a profound, profound book. So that's it on that. Okay, so uh, The Generous Life. We're talking about The Generous Life. Uh, we're using this language out of uh, um, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, at the end of Matthew chapter 5. Um, in the translation, the message, Eugene Peterson talks about, he kind of translates Jesus' words like, all right, are you getting this? If you are getting this, then absorb it in order to live a generous life. And so that's where that phrase comes from. And today we're going to look at this profound mystery called treasures in heaven. So why don't we just read, actually, why don't you stand while we read God's word together. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. We'll put it on the screen, but if you have your uh, Bibles or your your phone's open. Please feel free to follow along. This is the New International Version. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves can break in and steal. But instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart also will be. The eye is a lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The reading of God's word. You guys can have a seat. Now let's go back uh, to that first uh, verse there, verse 19. I just want to point out just a couple of things. So we're going to do this morning. Point out a couple things, tell a few stories, or maybe not, um, and then kind of talk about when we get to application, talk about a little bit more of the why versus the what, um, and then maybe leave ourselves with a challenge. But let's just go through it first. A couple things. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Well, the moths and vermin. Now, some of you have versions that you're reading from that do not say the word vermin. Can anybody yell out a word that you see in your translation? Rust. Anything else? Yeah, it's interesting. This says vermin. The word is actually to eat. It's this word uh, to be eaten, but not necessarily in the context of food being eaten. It's anything that can be eaten by anything um, uh, chemical or otherwise. Now, we can say vermin because it's true. Animals will come in and eat your stuff. Um, but in a sense here, uh, Jesus is saying, um, I think the better translation is moth and rust. And here's why. Uh, one of the most expensive things that you would own in the first century is your clothing. And typically, your outer coat, your outer shell coat. Clothes are really expensive. Fashions did not change year to year, decade to get decade. Clothes were very, 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 very expensive. And if you had a good coat, it would be passed down from generation to generation to generation. This, to some people, would be their only valued possession. They would treat it carefully, they would care for it, they would tend to it, and when they died, they would pass it on to their children, and so on and so forth. These were really, really expensive things. Remember who Jesus is talking to. He gathers his disciples to teach this Sermon on the Mount, and then all sorts of people show up. But we know that his disciples are not wealthy. Yes, Peter was a fisherman and probably owned his own company, but for the most part, yes, there was a tax, but we, we understand that in that, in that space, that small space of 12, there's a fair bit of poverty. 
And so Jesus begins by saying, think about the moths that come in and can destroy your thing. Literally, what Jesus is talking about is the potential for a bug to come in and lay eggs in your woolen garment and start to destroy that simple, simple thing. He's talking to people that don't have a lot of wealth. But then he talks about rust. And why I like rust versus vermin is because rust then is going to be um, any chemical that is applied to a material object that begins to deteriorate its value. And most of those things of material value are going to be uh, objectively um, um, a, a greater treasure. An object that has greater value. It could be coin. Uh, it could be, um, it could be um, um, a, a, like a goblet. It could be anything. It could be a plate. But anything that was valued had the potential. And so what Jesus does here is he creates a bookend. And he says, from the simplest pauper to the richest king, all that you possess, all objects that you possess, have the capacity to be destroyed by something else. And then he says, and if you think you can hide them in the perfect treasure chest to keep it uh, and sealed and away from all of these things, don't forget the thieves. Now, most of these people are living in homes that are designed with, with mud on the sidewalls. And a thief could just stand, that you're like, you announce on social media in the first century that you're, you're going on vacation, and that thief's just going to come over there and just pick at your wall until he gets his hand in, he's going to go through. There are no locks. You're going to kick in doors and go through windows. There's no, there's no way to protect your stuff. And essentially, he's saying everybody is an audience of this subject. Moths and rust. And then he goes in and begins to tell this story about why. And then he says, where your treasures are also be. So there's a good proverb. Go to the next section. Then he continues with this metaphor about the lamp of the body and the eye and light and dark and goodness and evil and health and unhealth. And he does this little metaphor. And then he finishes at the end. Let's go to the next slide. Uh, where he, but where he kind of like, like sits it down, where before it's a little, uh, it's like a simile, and then it's a little bit of metaphor, and then he gets into this section, he's like, let's just say, you can't serve two masters. You can't. You're not designed, you don't have the capacity to do that. You are, in your nature, have the capacity to serve one thing. It's interesting here, though, um, in your translation that we have on the, on the board that I put up is the NIV. Now, I love the NIV. It's, it's, I think it's a, a great translation. But um, like translations, uh, there's, a, there's a little bit of, of necessity to interpret. One of my first lessons in seminary a long time ago uh, was this Italian proverb that says, every translator is a traitor. <laughs> and the idea is that you have to look at these things and you have to determine its context and what its word is. Now, I'm going to ask a question. Does somebody... In the audience here, and if you're on TV, or that'd be great, TV. Listen to me, I sound like I'm, I sound like I'm 50. Hey. After this, do you guys want to go to the show? Some of you get that. Some of you old people are like, I get you, brother. It says you cannot serve God and money. Does anybody in their translation have anything interesting in their printed thing about the word money that's different than what's on the screen here? What is it? Who said that? Said Mammon? Somebody else? It's capitalized. In early translations of this, the word money is capitalized. The NIV in 1978, I think the original NIV had it capitalized, and then recently in the TNIV have begun to change it to, to, to a lowercase m. This is all based on context. The word is Mammon. 
Mammon is this common uh, word in the first century that, that is about any, any possession, any treasure that you can have. It can be money, but it can really be, it's a broad term for anything valuable. But translators understood in the beginning that Jesus was personifying the idol of possession and giving mammon a name, an identity. And he's juxtaposing the name of God to the name of treasure on earth. He's juxtaposing the name of God and what happens when mammon or money or possessions becomes our idol. I think that's missing here. I think it's important for us to see this. So what is Jesus talking about in this passage? Is he talking about that money is evil? No, he didn't say that. Is he talking about that possessions are bad? No, he's not saying that either. I think what Jesus is talking about at the end of the day is our relationship to things that we believe bring us security. Yeah, I think he is talking about money, but I think it's more than that. I think he is talking about possessions. I think it's more than that. He's talking about treasures, but I think it's more than that. And I think this passage, understanding who the audience, the clue of moth and rust, and this notion of mammon, which is the allure of tangible treasure for security, helps us identify that what Jesus is talking about is this notion of do you feel safe and sound and secure? And I think Jesus understands our security issues, which are really insecurity issues, better than we do. And I think he's known this forever. Because I think Jesus is acknowledging that he has witnessed the hustle of humanity from the beginning. What was the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve? Was it, was it eating of an apple? No. That was, that was like the means to the end. The failure of our first parents is that they weren't content with the security that God was providing. It was a failure to trust God in the moment. And this self-attempt to know more and be more or become more or to have more. That's not the way it was set up. And the hustle begins. And then then Adam and Eve are are, are kicked out of the garden, and then they have these two sons. And within that first generation, while these two sons are young, one murders the other because of the hustle. Because of their relationship to sin and their relationship to possession, their relationship to treasure. And God watches the hustle. He watches the hustle with Abraham. He watches the hustle with Noah. He watches the hustle with David. He watches the hustle of of, of Israel and the prophets. He's watching the hustle in first century Rome. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene and he gets to this passage, I think he's talking about this endless hustle for security and the insecurity that comes with it. I think what Jesus is trying to say is that nothing that you can possess, tangibly possess, anything made or unmade, can never, ever satisfy you and keep you secure. Nothing. There is a trick that the enemy pulls on us that if I just had a little bit more, then I would be. If I just had a little bit more in my account, then I could. If I just had, if I just had, if I just had, if I keep the hustle going, at some point I'll be satisfied. 
Nobody has said this clearer and better in my understanding than a man named David Foster Wallace, who was a uh, professor, um, taught um, English, philosopher, and he dabbled in religion, faith, and theology and the Judeo-Christian ethic, trying to understand value, trying to understand um, um, worthiness, trying to understand is there anything in the world that is worth it? And in 2009, he gives this commencement speech at, at uh, Kenyon College. It's called This is Water. You can find it online and listen to it. It's only about 25 minutes. I'd ask you all at some point to go listen to it. It is a profound, profound, prophetic statement to a bunch of young graduates on what's, what is the reality and what is the world in front of them. And in the middle of it, now remember, this guy is not in faith. Everybody worships, he says. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are what you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already, he says. It's been codified as myths and proverbs and cliches and epigrams and parables. The skeleton of every great story is this, he says. The whole trick is to keeping the truth up front in their daily consciousness. Worship power and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're not evil or sinful, it's just that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're a kind of worship that you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. Now, the one thing that I would disagree with, David Foster Wallace, is I actually think this is sin. I think it is sin. I think there's a hardwired sense that I agree with, but, but it is sin. Because what it's saying is, is that I'm going to have another God except for this one. I'm going I'm to allow a grave in him. I'm going to carve myself an image and worship that instead of the Lord. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2 and 3, the first two commands. Don't have any other gods, and don't make anything that you'll worship. Don't possess anything that you'll worship. I think the Lord knew this. I think Jesus, as Lord, knew this and has watched this hustle the whole time. But I think Foster Wallace is right. If your hustle is for money, it's never enough. And there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who have said in the midst of the hustle, it's never enough. And when I got there, it was more. And all it did was produce more anxiety. If it's your body and beauty and sexuality, if that's your hustle, then you're going to hustle and hustle and hustle and hustle. But at some point, you start to break down. Some point, you start to break down. Is it power? Then you will hustle and hustle and hustle after power, and you will do anything you can to maintain that power. But in your own mind, in the fragility of your own person, you are deathly afraid of the world around you. And if power is your hustle, then you will just exhaust more energy to put more people under your thumb, regardless of what it does to their life. And yet you will still be 
empty. If it's intellect, if you think you're the smartest one in the room, and I'm just going to keep reading the knowledge um, and, and gain more knowledge, gain more knowledge, gain more knowledge, look what it did to Solomon. He ended up a shell of himself because it was never enough. He couldn't know enough. And at the end of the day, there's this sense that I'm a fraud, and this pursuit was fraudulent. So what are we supposed to do with all this? Well, as I said earlier, I'm getting old. And I remember the year of the Lord, 1980. And I remember those great, that great decade of the 1980s. I remember when MTV was launched. You guys remember this? Some of you do. You, do you guys remember this? People are like, what's MTV? <laughs> but I remember when we first got MTV and they would play five videos and they'd put a clock on it and say, we'll be back in five hours because we have no more content. That was great. Can anybody name the first video ever played on MTV? Video killed the radio star. How prophetic. I remember when gas was 80 cents. <laughs> I remember when gas was 80 cents, and my buddies and I, would, we'd borrow the car from... Uh, I, I grew up in Detroit, and so every... Uh, I don't know if you knew that. I just like to talk about that every now and then. Um, but every kid had, like, their dad's old, like, Chevy Nova from, like, you know, 68. And so we would all get together, and $5, you could, like, you drive to Chicago and back, right, from Detroit. And that's what we did. I remember that. I remember Die Hard was released, and it changed the trajectory of the world forever. Um, remember that? I remember when the Berlin Wall fell. I remember capitalism thriving in the 80s, and we were coming off a decade in the 70s where capitalism wasn't thriving. There were long lines at gas stations. Anybody remember going, sitting in line at the gas station? Some of you do. There were no gas. Everything was expensive. Inflation was through the roof. People, there, poverty was stricken. But in the 80s, it all boomed. It came back. And we were living in the throes of plenty. And this bumper sticker that I found on Etsy that you can buy right now or on eBay says this, and this was common, and if you remember this, the one who dies with the most toys wins. This was on bumper stickers of all these Cadillacs and all kinds of cars and Lincolns that was going up in Detroit. He who dies with the most toys wins. And the people were collecting toys. And growing up on Michigan, everybody had a lake house, and every lake house had toys. We had boats and snowmobiles and, and jet skis and, and windsurfers and kayaks. We were just collecting toys, and it was a season of plenty. And I remember as a kid seeing this bumper sticker and not really being a theologian, you know, at eight or nine, I thought, I, I don't think this is true. I, I don't think this is true. But it is a symbol of the hustle. There's this idea, if I can just get more, I'll be all right. The arrogance of the pursuit of treasure is real. It's easy to take that off. It's easy to conclude that what we're supposed to do here is just simply this. Heed the warning of Jesus that possessions can become idols. Don't be a slave to your possessions or your money. Think heavenly. Invest heavenly, whatever that means. Trust Jesus. I mean, th that's kind of the moral of the story. And I think all of this is, is true. And Jesus does speak in the sense of prohibition. Don't do this, but do this kind of separates dark from light, good from evil, right from wrong. And he's kind of challenging his disciples to become more like himself and less like the world. But the easy thing to do for us preachers in passages like this, and I've been guilty of this in my past, Lord forgive me, 
is to um, moralize this. What's the moral of the story? Well, let's just identify what is right and put it on one side of a ledger. Let's identify what's wrong and put it on the other side of the ledger. And let's just challenge each other to live on the right side and not the wrong side. Do this, and then you will become more like Christ. I think that's the easy thing to do. And I think that's what we do a lot. And if you go read, uh, listen to sermons around the Sermon on the Mount, and this one in particular, it's a lot of that. Don't do that. Money's not evil, but it can become your God. Store up treasures in heaven. Well, what can you take to heaven with you? Souls, which is really arrogant. Uh, One pastor said, your character. I was like, crap, I don't want my character in heaven. Mine's terrible. (laughs) Amen, Anne, wherever you are, right? (laughs) Preach it. Yeah, like, what do you take to heaven? I think the easy thing for us to do is just to make this ledger and say, let's just stand on one side and kind of wave our hand and say, this is the way, like the Mandalorians. And again, I don't think it's terrible, but I think we have to remember a couple things. I think if we do that, then all we're doing is focusing on the what of the passage and not the why. Simon Sinek wrote a book called Start With Why. It's one of the great leadership books. It's great life lessons. Most people have an idea of who they are. A smaller percent wake up every morning knowing what they're supposed to do, but very few wake up knowing why they do it. I think Jesus is getting at the why because Jesus as a rabbi to his disciples is not saying, do what I say. He's saying, listen to my words because I end these things now become more like me. Listen to my words because I end this thing, these things and be transformed more and more into me and less into the world. I think Jesus is inviting us in this into the why. Heather did this earlier, but I'm going to put it up again, our identity statement. Last year, we, we created a new identity, identifiable statement of who we felt God was calling us to be. And every word in here was um, put in with a, um, with a specificity of why. We are a community. We wanted to start with that. We want to declare to our neighbors that this is a value to us. We are a community. And the community of the gathered people in the room is that we are imperfect. I think there's just a good, healthy recognition um, that Christians sometimes miss. And sometimes there's a theology, because we're in Christ, we're supposed to be perfect. We're supposed to live on the one side of the ledger. Um, but I don't know about you, but I had to wake up this morning and say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. And forgive those who sin against me. We are imperfect, yet we are beloved by Jesus. We are the beloved of Jesus. Therefore, we are efforting, seeking to live in him and in his ways. It's it's more than... We we don't want to just know Jesus intellectually. We actually want to live a transformed life in him. I think this is really important. I think this is really, really important. And so as I set out on a a little bit of a theological study over the last couple weeks on this passage, the slippery slope was just to get into what should we do, what should we do, what should we do. And I kept seeking further and further to say, no, I want to know the why behind this. And in doing so, I discovered that one of my best friends in the world, a guy named Tim Keller, we've never met, but if we did meet, <laughs> we would crush it. It would be amazing. Um, uh, I'm just, I'm convinced of that. Tim, if you're listening, <laughs> Mike at warehouse242.org. Let's hang out. It'll be great. We'll be buddies. Um, I could write the forward in your next book. I mean, you put one out like every two months, so there's got to be space for me somewhere. But Tim, as I like to call him, Timmy sometimes, uh, 
gave me some really, really healthy insight on this, and I'm really indebted to it. So um, this isn't a, a word-for-word ripoff, but the arc of this, I'm really indebted to him. The, what is the way of Jesus, then? Um, friends, Jesus is God. He's not just a rabbi or a good teacher. He is God. He is one of the three persons of the Trinity, which is a huge, mysterious statement. Our God is one. But he's three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Endlessly interconnected, endlessly for the other. Endlessly loving and serving the other. And there are attributes about this God that are very, very unique to what it means to be God. Incommunicable attributes. Attributes that only God shares, that separate God from anything made or created. One is that he's independent. That means he's not bound or dependent on anything for its existence. It doesn't need anything made to tell him who he is or to explain to him what he is or why. He is totally, totally fixed and comfortable and rooted in self. He is immutable, which means he's unchangeable. God moves, but he doesn't change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What does that mean? Well, John says it in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and Word, Jesus, was with God, and the Word was God, and all that was made was made through God. So Jesus has existed yesterday, today, and forever. He's moved, but he's not changed. He's been there from the beginning. Another one is that he is infinite, which means he has no limitations. He is perfect and absolute in knowledge and goodness and love and wisdom and in all things eternal. Everything that was and is and is to come is within him. He is not bound. He is not limited by anything in all of the universe. And the last one is that he is simple. And this one may sound a little strange to say. And all that means is that he is not composed of various parts. He is not an object that is put together by a little bit of this and a little bit of this and a little bit of this. He's not. God is not. And Jesus has been God from the beginning, and Jesus remains God until the end. He is the royal king of the entire universe. He has a cattle on a thousand hills. And I know that metaphor might get lost on us, but in, in, but in antiquity, if you were to write that there is a, there is a, um, a keeper of cattle, that, 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 that the land is a thousand hills and the cattle flood and occupy, that's like the grandest, biggest thing that you can think of. That's like owning an island. That's like owning a nation. That's like owning it all. And they're like, this God is so grand and so big, his, he's got a thousand hills, and his cattle occupy all of that. And those shepherds and herders and farmers understood the depth of this. If Jesus were saying it today, or, uh, or, or the Old Testament was ringing this song, it would say, Elon Musk is a mere pauper to the treasures that the Lord possesses. He owns it all. Have you guys been looking at the pictures of the new web um, Uh, telescope looking into space? If you're living this existence that feels small and bored, go look at these pictures and understand what they are. There's a picture. I forgot to put it up. I was going to send it. But every twinkle in this picture, it's, 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 they took a picture of like empty space and blew it up and blew it up and blew it up. It's not like perfect iPhone, right? Everything is perfect and clear. And there's like a thousand twinkles. And every twinkle in that picture is another galaxy, it's not, a, it's not a single body floating in space. It is a galaxy with its own stuff. 
And there's thousands of it. And the Lord is the king over all of it. All of it. Yet, in the fullness of time, he left the heavenly throne, which everything was his, and all possessions were his, and every dollar that could be accumulated belonged to him, and every piece of land, and every treasure known in the, all of it is his. He left that to be born of a virgin, to be born with flesh. And not only, so we can say, well, then in a macro sense, he gave up all the riches to become poor. But Jesus just didn't, he didn't, he wasn't born into a king, to a land, to an, to, to an empire as the son of a king. He was born poor. They were so poor when they circumcised him on the eighth day, they, Mary and Joseph, they used two doves, two pigeons, which was the lowest form of sacrifice to be made in the temple for the circumcision of a son on the eighth day. They were poor he was raised by, by a teenage mother and a father who was a carpenter. He was a day laborer. And at some point after 12, before 30, Joseph is no longer in the picture. He's now being raised by a single mom who has been ostracized. They were poor. And when he starts his ministry, he has no place to lay his head. He doesn't have a home. He doesn't have an income. And he lives in abject poverty amongst those on the margins, totally dependent on the story that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are telling about why Jesus came. And he dies and he doesn't have enough money for a tomb, so he has to borrow one. Not only did our Jesus give up all the riches of the universe, he gave up any richness on earth. That is not to say he doesn't have a treasure, though. So let's look what Colossians says. So Jesus kind of launches this beginning about treasures and money and value and uses the word treasure three times. But look what Paul says as we begin to progress this theology going forward. My goal, he says, Paul's writing in chapter 2 in the beginning, is that they, and they, he's talking about churches that he's writing to, Laodicea and Colossae. My goal is that they, the churches, might be encouraged in heart and united in love. So what? So they may have the full treasures of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Stay there. No, go back. My goal is that the church would know that they have all of the treasures of Christ. Hidden is a funny verb. It means to hide or be in secret unless you use uh, the passive indicative. Then it means to be laid up with. It means to be interconnected and interjoined with. It means to become one with. In whom all of the riches and all of the treasures you have been intertwined and interconnected with the Lord of the universe with. His treasure is that you get to share in his treasure. That's his invitation. Go to the next verse. And then in three, the next chapter, he says, since then you've been raised with Christ, so set your heart on things above. This goes back to the treasures in heaven where Christ is seated at the right hand. And set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. It's again, it's this repetition. For you who died and your life is now hidden, laid up with Christ. When Christ, who, you're, um, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. So what he's saying is, when you look, store up treasures in heaven, what you're doing, it's easy for us to think, what must I do? What are the things I got to do to, to, to tangibly do the things that will live forever in heaven? And Paul's like, no, 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 you're, you're missing the point. You can't do any of that. 
But the gift is, is that Christ Jesus has given you his treasure and intertwines and interconnects with you now into the forevermore. Storing up treasures in heaven is living in the ways of Jesus. And he is perfectly content with all that he has, and he shares it with you. Unbelievable game-changing moment. Peter continues with some of this theology. Look what he says. 1 Peter 2.7. Now, I do use the New King James and the New LT because, again, the NIV is good. It's not perfect here. I'm being a traitor to my own translation. It says this, Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. Sometimes it says in the NIV, um, um, it says something about um, the preciousness of the stone or the preciousness of the one. The word precious here is a noun. It is not an adjective. Therefore, you who believe in Christ, he is the treasure. He's singularly the treasure. But you, he says two verses later, when he talks about those that reject the stone of the foundation, but you're not like that. Why? Because you've been chosen. You have been gathered and possessed by the God of the universe. Therefore, you become royal. He's the king. You are now part of the royal family. And not only are you members of the family, you are priests. A holy nation. A called, set-apart nation. God's possession. That is another word for treasure. You are the treasure of God. And as a result, you can show others goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. You see the parallel here. He's called you out. So what am I getting at in all of this? I think it's easy sometimes for us to say the reason that Jesus came to earth is because I'm a sinner and I sinned and I failed and I need a savior. And that is true. But there's a flip side of the coin that we rarely talk about. The other side is that God loved you so much that he gave up all of the riches of the kingdom of heaven to come on earth and gather you because he thinks and he believes and he knows that you are actually his prized possession. It's easy for us to think about this in a self-centered way that um, this is all about me, this is all about me, this is all about my need. But perhaps intertwined, intermingled into the story isn't just your sinful need, but God's desire for you. That while we were sinners, Christ died for you. The purpose of Jesus coming is because you are actually the greatest possession that he owns. And he wants to gather you together and he wants to give you everything he has now and forever. That is holy other. There has not been a God in the history of the world that ever, ever laid out an invitation like this. Never in the history of the world. You, my friends, you are the possession of God and he loves you so much that he came to rescue you, to reconcile you back to the Father and to live in perfect unity. The word to know God and hidden in God is this word gnosko, which means to be intimately connected, body, soul, mind, heart, and strength. All of it laid up with, connected with, now and forevermore. God who possesses all treasure calls you his most prized possession. That, you guys, is a game changer. It's a game changer. Finally, we'll close with this. Go back to uh, Matthew 6. Should be the next one. The eye is a lamp of the body. But if your eyes are healthy, your whole body is full of light. That word healthy, does anybody, in that first line, does anybody have another word in their Bible that's different than healthy? 
in your translations? I know I cheated by giving it to you on the board. Anybody have one? Sometimes you'll see the word good. It's actually a word that means simple. Um, it's a hard word to translate because it has to be translated in context. So for a while, the translation, if your eyes are good, then your whole body will be full of light. Because if your eyes are simple, it means that they're functioning. That's kind of the interpretation of it. But there's a second definition of this word. Aplus, I think is what the word is. And it means generous. It means generous. This isn't my translation. This is lots of smarter people than me. But the eye is a lamp of the body. If your eyes are generous, your whole body will be full of light. If your eyes are generous. If we go back to the first Peter passage, which I think we have too. Um, I think you have that one. Go back. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. When we talk about what does it mean to live a generous life, this is it. If your eye is generous, then your body will be filled with light, and you will live in the light. So what can we be generous towards? Well, we can be generous towards God. And that is, how is your time, your talent, your treasure being given up sacrificially as an offering before the Lord and the advancement of his kingdom? How are your possessions not possessing you, but how do your things, how do you use them as worship unto God, the edification of community, and the advancement of kingdom? I think part of the challenge, in a simple way, is that we need to figure out what it means to be givers, and we need to give it away. But we also show goodness to people and to show goodness to others. I think this is part of the point of what Jesus is saying, and even Paul and even Peter. If your life is hidden, laid up with Christ, then you ought to give that away to serve and honor your neighbors, to show others the goodness of God. All of this, this entire series, is about living generously. So I'll just close with this. What does it look like for you in the name of property, possession, and money to not be slaves to those things, but to surrender those things before God, to be filled with the light of God, to be filled with the transcendence and the salvation of Christ, to be filled with the goodness and the hope and the mercy of God in order to give it away to neighbor. The easy thing is just to tell you what to do, but that would be getting back to the what. I think it's your responsibility to consider what it could be, but I really hope that you would just consider why first before we do. Let's pray. And so, Lord, um, speak um, big and bold to us, even now. Help us to see our reality. Have we substituted our first love for some other tangible material thing that we think can bring us security and satisfaction? Holy Spirit, lead us back to the throne, to Christ seated as king. And let us worship him, for he is worthy of our worship. He is the only, only thing in the universe that can bring us security and satisfaction. So Spirit, bring us back. Bring us back in the name of forgiveness and kindness and mercy. Shower us with your love and your attention. Transform us more and more into the image of Jesus and less into the image of the world. And may we, your people, shine a light that shows your goodness to all of our neighbors. May we be generous with this gift. Amen. Would you stand with us?
go I lay it all down again To hear you say that I'm your friend you guys stay standing for just a second. Um, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Um, we're really, really grateful for all of you. Thank you, Caleb, who's first time helping us out today. We're grateful for you and your time and your gift. Thank you, Caleb. Thank you, Ben. Thank you all in the back, Bruce, Jack, Noah, uh, Scott. Um, to those of you online, we say hello. Everybody's going to turn the camera and say hi to everybody in Homeland. Say hi to the people on the TV. Good to see you. Um, Thanks to our kids' warehouse people, our, our coffee makers today, 
um, our hosts, our hospitality people, our parking lot people, and all that. So thank you to everybody to make this happen. Just a few announcements as we leave. Uh, number one is that we are a community that prays. Uh, my friend Chandler is in the back. You wave a little higher, Chandler, so we can see you. There's a real person back there. This is Chandler. He's our, um, uh, uh, our pastoral intern. Um, would love to pray with you. There's a beautiful prayer room around the corner. God's stirring things in you, and it's something that you need to get off and you need to pray about. You need to gather others in. Go see him. You can also send your prayers to prayer at warehouse 242 org and a group of committed people will pray with you and alongside of you as long as it takes. Um, second, we are community gives. This is a really, really opportune time to talk about storing up treasures in heaven and giving. Um, giving is an act of worship. It's an identification that our possessions do not possess us. It's an identification that we do have treasures that can be used to honor community, serve neighbors, and serve our nations. We do our best with as much integrity as we can um, muster um, before the Lord to receive these gifts and disperse them in ways, uh, ways that bring hope and life and mercy to our neighbors and nations. So help us with that. Um, for some of us, um, this is the next step of our spiritual journey, and that is to let go of those things that we feel bring us security and to begin to trust the Lord who owns the cattle on a thousand hills um, and uh, to do that. So consider that. There are yellow boxes in the back. You can give online. You can do repeated giving. Um, uh, you can set that up. Um, if you want to talk more about it, talk to myself. You can talk to Bob Gluck here, too. I'd be happy to help you set all of that up. Okay, next. Um, we connect. And so in the back, um, my friend Heather Gu is back there. And Heather, um, our uh, brilliant director of family ministries, would love to talk to you about ways that you could serve in Kids Warehouse. Um, this is um, our time is one of the great commodities that we own. And one of the ways that we can serve the kingdom of God is by giving of our time to serve others. And a place that we need servants right now is in Kids Warehouse. So let's name that. So if you're looking or if you're feeling called to serve, that is a brilliant opportunity for you to go see Heather. Also back there is Larry Landry. Raise your hand, Larry. Larry, pastor of spiritual formation. Would love to talk to you about other things. There's other things on the walls that you, teams you can join, ways to connect, meetups, and stuff like that. Also, my friend Lika Garnett is in the back. She's walking, handheld. Hi, Lika. Ann Laurie might be back there too. Um, they're going to be in the coffee room to talk about the border encounter trip if you're looking for um, more information on that. All right, is that it? All right, receive the benediction. Brothers and sisters of Warehouse, turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. May you know that you are the greatest treasure that God has. You are laid up with him now and forevermore. Therefore, let that light shine. And as you walk out these doors, may the goodness and the radiance of that light shine on neighbor and friend and coworker and classmate and nation, celebrating the goodness and mercy of God to all of his people, his treasure. Go in the name of Jesus. Amen. Mm -hmm.